Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Cindy Milstein, who is our guest this week. Uh, she edited the uh, book, uh, Collective Work. It's called Rebellious Morning: The Collective Work of Grief, and this is put out by AK Press. So we're very happy to have you. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Kevin. And uh, so uh, I was very drawn into this book. I found it to be very provocative and also important. Uh, and, and it assesses some aspects of uh, social justice and movement work uh, that doesn't really get talked about and also confronts some really um, heavy uh situations that people are dealing with on a daily basis, especially when you're involved in the work that a lot of people uh, get themselves involved in when it comes to organizing against oppression and injustice. And so when I when we start this interview out, I suppose the best way to enter into this conversation is to start to talk about uh, what you think grief is to the people who are involved in activism or movement work in these spaces and then talk about that that issue of uh, whether you should keep that grief buried and private or whether you can open it up and and share that with other people and as you suggest in framing um, this book so for people who don't know about the book this is a collection of essays with a, a multiple contributors who uh, I'm actually hoping to produce a, a series with them and have more of them on to talk about the book so people who listen to the show can look forward to more discussions along these lines. But to just get into the, the more general subject today, what about these bonds of loss and that issue of whether to keep it buried or not? Yeah, um, I, the impulse behind this book in is both personal and political. Um, as someone who's long time done um, organizing through an anarchist lens in um, collectives and, and movements and other struggles and um, living in this world today, um, ex have understood that that experience is sort of in a way signing yourself up for um, really facing the profound uh, grief and pain and loss that this world is producing at the moment. Um, so this book, what I think is different about this book from a lot of other grief books, because there are many, is that this one is looking at it through the lens of what it means to, to grieve and mourn losses that come because of structural forces. Um, Obviously, the human condition is we're born into this world knowing right away that we will die. And so we will experience loss. We'll experience heartbreak, um, death, a host of other human things that are that are about pain and suffering. And we can't alleviate that. I don't I don't even think that's the goal. I mean, the human condition is that we we will we will feel pain. And I think that is a a beautiful thing in a certain way, because you only feel pain and grief over things you love and care about. Um, if you didn't care about them, you wouldn't care that they got lost. So. But this book is looking at this at this moment when sort of overwhelmingly, I think the zeitgeist is that people are experiencing profound forms of loss on multiple levels and pretty ubiquitously, almost everybody. And they're, they're losses that 
I think most of us would understand wouldn't have to happen if the world were structured in more egalitarian, humane, ecological, um, non-hierarchical ways. So this book looks at the relationship between when there are structural losses, how do we who live in this world as human beings and or hopefully organize to try to create a better world, how, how do we figure out ways to collectively grieve and, and in non-instrumental ways um, make that a daily part of the work we're doing to lessen those structural losses. And ho hopefully a lot of the stories, um, well, there are 37 contributions in, in the anthology and um, they're all very poetic and bittersweet and they all touch on a myriad of different types of losses um, from structural um, sources from murder by police to what it means to live in a world where it feels like the entire our entire species is at risk of extinction due to climate catastrophe. Um, and what are the ways that the can sort of assertion or argument is when we when we figure out ways to bring that into our everyday collective um, ways of resisting and struggling toward a better world and and understand collectively how we can grieve together um, that it helps us better grapple um, with our own pain, give it meaning and worth and give our lives meaning and worth and um, bring out different types of human emotions. So long answer to get to why we shouldn't bury pain. Um, I think that pain is a human thing. So in a way, us bringing that to the forefront and making that visible and sharing that collectively is accentuating our very humanity and the, the range of emotions that we feel as human beings and doing that in a way that's much more loving and empathetic and caring. And right now, so many of us bury pain because we're told that our pain is individual and it's private and we need to step away to do self-care and come back when we're ready, when we're done with it, which is, is really at odds <laughs> with, with how pain works. That, Like I said, we all come into this world. Uh, someone had this beautiful... Um, I've done some events around this book and someone shared this beautiful um, image to me where they said when, a, when a, a baby is born, a human baby is born, it has to come out with someone's hands touching it. Someone has to bring it to the world and it has to be nurtured for a while. You can't just set it down and it will survive on its own. So we, we are instantly also brought into a world of social relationships and interdependence and, and vulnerability with, with each other. <laughs> so how can we make that last through the whole of our lives? And so part of that is sharing our pain collectively, I think will strengthen our social relationships. And right now when we're told to keep it inside and um, not share it with others, I think the bearing of that, the, the hiding of that, the invisibilizing of that actually allows for these structures that are killing most of us in various ways or destroying us to further be hidden. And it, it also means that um, we sort of end up feeling divided from each other as if we're the only ones that are experiencing this. And that pain is still there. So it comes out in other ways. Um, I mentioned one loss that we all probably will experience is heartache. And I could imagine that heartache would still hurt, but it would feel a lot different if I didn't live in a world that was patriarchal and heteronormative, for instance. So how do we, how the ways in which certain people express their pain is sometimes very violent or brutal or lashing out at others. Um, often pain expresses itself as, as hurting someone else instead of actually just being open that, you know, we're all experiencing different forms of pain and could could share and support and love each other in different ways that would make that again more bearable and allow us to express um, those range of emotions in ways that that might actually create a better world in the process too. 
it's almost possible to see it as a way of universally appealing to other people who have these same shared human experiences because everyone is going to, because this is how human life works, deal with the loss of people they love and the way you can appeal and get them to empathize and maybe buy into recognizing structural oppression that is creating the loss of untold numbers of human lives or creating untold numbers of of, of, of suffering is to appeal to that emotion and, and let them know that, you know, in this case, in many of the cases in this book, what we're talking about aren't things that just our life running its course, but it is, as you say, it, these are instances where it could be prevented. So uh, you can you can comment on what I just said there, but to, to keep steering the conversation, I do want to bring in what you eloquently wrote here in your prologue to this book, where you said, our grief, our feelings as words or actions, images or practices can open up cracks in the wall of the system it can also pry open spaces of contestation and reconstruction, intervulnerability and strength, empathy and solidarity. It can discomfort the stories told from above that would have uh, that would have us believe we aren't human or deserving of life affirming lives, or for that matter, life affirming deaths. And so there are actually two parts to that paragraph there that we could talk about, and. I, the first one I would raise is just to you know, ask you if you have any examples um, about the potential of opening up these cracks in the wall. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> I feel like there are um, so many examples from the, the, the poignant, both the, some of the poignant stories in, in the anthology. Um, but um, yeah, many examples from what we're experiencing right now when, um, well, I'll take I'll take one example right now. I just happened to to be in Houston recently, right after the hurricane, and there's a lot of people there that had were doing um, do-it-yourself uh, mutual aid disaster relief work, which means not through the state or through police or FEMA, but just person to person. Um, just people kind of you know looked up and realized their neighbors and other people they didn't even know needed needed mutual aid from each other, so they started helping each other. And um, one of the ways that expressed itself there was the water went down pretty quickly and apparently you need to gut the insides of your entire house um, down to the bare bones of the house. <laughs> like almost a, like just the image is almost like a, yeah, a death, a gutting death of the house and throw all your things out quickly because it creates all sorts of really hazardous molds and um, can be life threatening and cause illnesses. So there were some like, like 30, 40,000 homes that are being gutted really quickly. And one of the people of some of the people who were down there doing it were ex sharing with me how when they went into some people's homes to, to help them and they didn't even know them, they would just almost, the person would almost just stand there unable to, to, to bring themselves to take things from their home and, and toss it outside. And what they were ending up, they realized doing was 50% helping people demolish and, and cart out um, the entirety of their homes, but 50% um, grief work in a sense, <laughs> you know, not in a, not in a paid way, not in a instrumental way, not in a, again, in a very human way where they just realized part of what was happening was people were having to grieve 
the entirety of their whole lives. They're throwing away pictures and things that have meaning for them or a space that they, you know, had lived their whole lives and had attachment to and might not be able to come back to. So, and then they were just having to throw their life basically in a heap on the street corner. So, um, so in these moments when we think we aren't, <laughs> we aren't doing um, grief work to be more clear, we had a conversation in Houston about how would we be more clear that that's actually part of the process of doing mutual aid disaster relief that, that doesn't happen when police or the state come in and they're just like needing to figure out how to get people, you know, water or this or that. They're not actually taking the time to stop and listen to the stories and look at pictures and let someone stay in their home for a couple of days, maybe longer than they should, because them grieving is more important maybe than whether they're going to get a little more sick if they stay there for another day or two. So, so that's in a way a very human thing that happens at these moments when people are doing what they understand to be both political work and organizing, but also just very human care work um, that's, that's fully sort of integrated. Um, and so part of what this book I think is arguing too, is this isn't something external <laughs> to the work we're doing to try to change the world. Um, mutual aid disaster relief work is trying to come up with other ways that we would house ourselves and feed ourselves and, and survive what's going to become the new normal of, of uh, weather patterns is where whole communities are almost totally destroyed and we have to take care of each other. And increasingly, we are going to have to take care of each other. So how do we, in the practice, both taking care of each other in material ways, but also emotional ways, and use the space of loss and grief as prefiguring the quality of lives we want, being better to each other in those moments, and hopefully sustaining that longer. Um, another, I, there's a lot of stories from, from movements that look at cracking open spaces. I, I touch on one of the piece I write about when I, I was living in San Francisco's mission until I was um, um, evic evicted out by the eviction epidemic there. And, um, and uh, but people kept coming together over the police were murdering um, people pretty frequently in the Bay Area. And there were two young men who were both Latino in the mission, which is primarily a Latino neighborhood. It's been kind of ground zero for gentrification, displacement and um people being brutally kicked out of their homes, many of whom die almost right after they're kicked out if they've lived there for decades. It's, it's really hard to lose your entire life, right? your, which is your home. But two um, young men were, were murdered for no other reason. The minute they were murdered, everyone in the neighborhood said, oh, this is because of gentrification. They're trying to cleanse the neighborhood and scare people out. And the second one in particular, they came within nine months of each other. The second one in particular just suddenly everyone in the neighborhood kind of poured out in this way together and created this outdoor spot on the sidewalk where he had been murdered by the police that became a shrine and a place to share ideas for organizing and to share all the other losses people were experiencing. And it also became the space where everyone was just grieving everything that was happening in that neighborhood, the multiple deaths the, through police being murdering people. There were, arsons by landlords to get people out that actually killed people right around that time. Um, just the profound loss of people being kicked out of a city, the loss of cultural and bohemian and radical and political spaces and just spaces people loved in this. The city's undergoing this profound, it's like a very intense war zone under capitalism. It's the most expensive place um, in North America um, to try to stay. And so it became this space where without us knowing it, we were creating this space where we were just all talking about how hard it was and sh sharing tears and laughter and anger and everything that grief is together. And out of that, it just made us also want to fight harder. And it wasn't anything, again, instrumental that 
well, we should fight harder. But but people through that came up with much more creative, self-empowering um, ways to fight back and ways that were going across lines that had divided us in the neighborhood. So across racial lines and age lines and class lines. And, and after that, some of the most powerful organizing happened there for a while because people, I think, were, were understanding that we really cared about each other and that we were lo- all losing something big that was this neighborhood and community together. And it was this kind of profound moment where, again, it's not to say silver linings come out of these horrible um, losses, because that's not the argument of this book. Um, none of the pieces end have happy endings or even have endings. There's more. It's they don't have closure because our losses and grief will continue. But they they point toward, well, what is qualitatively different this time <laughs> in this way? This time a person got shot by the police and died, but what was different? How did we treat each other? Um, in that case, people instantly figured out he was a young Guatemalan man who'd come to San Francisco to try to make money to send back to his family. And people instantly were able to figure out and find translators, the village he was from, really tiny village that used a Mayan dialect. They found someone who spoke it and we called his family directly instead of letting the police call and inform them. And that created relationships between that village and San Francisco, for instance. So in the process, we do life <laughs> and grief and, 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 and organizing and struggle better and being human better. So, so listening to you talk about that, there are a couple things that we could unpack. One aspect of what you're saying that's interesting is when we think about grieving what you're articulating, what this book's doing is creating a space for people to grieve. Uh, and it seems like on their own terms and to also create space so you can do that with the support uh, and, and without potentially uh, in the most aspirational sense, if you could, you would want to have a space that people could grieve uh, with the most limited and You'd want reduced harm from the structures of oppression that typically create that kind of uh, fear or anguish among people. You want you want them to be able to do, deal with their pain without having to go through the daily trauma that they go through. And so that's why I think a lot of the pieces that are written in this book speak to. So on the flip side, I'm, would you be able to articulate, you know, when, when you try to exist in this society, are there hegemonic or authoritarian manners that we are asked to go through the grieving process and follow a, a certain way? Uh, and, and what do those look like? Because I, I think maybe in identifying those problems, then you realize what you could put your finger on and, and try to fix and then perhaps maybe that's where you could start to form bonds of love between individuals if you can actually tell where those authoritarian uh, instructions or those mechanisms for grieving actually exist. Yep, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, it goes back to, I think, touches on what I was mentioning earlier, to, for starters, it, um, especially in, in the place called the United States, um, we are told... Um, the sort of origin story is pick yourself up by your bootstraps, the lone individual. And so, so much of how we even understand everything in life is through the lens of, you know, you need to do it yourself or the individual. 
So um, right off, right off, one, one thing this book, again, is arguing is, is that, that that's flawed, is that every time we have loss, um, which we will have repetitively through our lives, but especially now with the profound structural losses going on, the largest displacement of humanity in human history, for instance, um, and or yeah, a host of other, you know, intense precarity, um, economically and materially, um, that, that, um, every time any of us have a loss, it's instantly social. It's, it's not just me. If I have, even if I have one person I love die, it will impact everyone around me, <laughs> other friends, um, projects I'm part of, et cetera. People will understand that I'm having a hard time. It, it, it destabilizes everything in a way. So, um, Judith Butler has a, a beautiful concept um, about how um, loss and, and grief um, undoes us. We, we kind of like are opened up in this way where we're like, oh, I, I don't I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what to do with myself. And there's this moment when we're open up to ourselves. But what if we understand that opening to be in a collective social structure, I think it allows us to open up a lot more of who we are to to more people at the same time. So um that's one way. I think the hegemonic ways of grief, they, they are trying to tell us it's individual. So, so many grief books are just like sort of do it, you know, literally do it yourself help books. Um, but structurally, um, some of the, the loss actually take some of the major losses are that the, the structures that this book is contesting, like capitalism, actually take away our, our collective and individual power to grieve. So, for instance, most people, if they have a full time job or some precarious part-time job, they're allowed maybe a day or two to grieve. Maybe they get time off for a funeral. Maybe they don't. <laughs> um, people that are incarcerated don't necessarily uh, uh, most times get to leave to go to, let's say I'll speak of death here, um, get to leave to go to a funeral of someone they care about or be there when they're dying. Um, when we've seen a lot of um, images of, of um people who've lost people to um, murder by police and they have not been allowed to go touch um, their loved one when they're dying or hold their body on the street. They had to stand back and look at police tapes surrounding them. So structurally, the forces of white supremacy or capitalism or the state literally remove us <laughs> and don't allow us the time or the space or the very humanity and, and touch of, 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 grieving our losses. Um, so that's, again, what this book is trying to get at is those spaces um, that we could bring back ourselves. Um, another way that I, I've been really struck by is that um, grief is now considered um, a mental illness. According to the, the new DSM, um, you're only supposed to be in grief for a certain time period. And for all those of us who've lost pretty profound things over our lifetime, Again, losses related to love and what we care about. So it'll never completely lose us, that grief. We, we don't want it. We don't want to. <laughs> you know, sometimes 10 years later, it'll be the anniversary of something you lost and it will hit you as if it was yesterday. So it's not that grief has a time frame or that we're sick or need to be medicated um, and seen as crazy if, if we actually are just being human. Um, and a last little example I'll use personally. I, one thing that brought me to this book was I had um, three people who were either chosen or biologically had been um, parents in my life. And uh, I'd often had been parents to my parents for most of my life. So when my two biological parents got sick, I ended up uh, taking care of them for about a year, 13 or so months. And uh, a third person who was um, my mom's best friend, who was like a mom to me. And they all, I, I feel very fortunate. They all, um, I found something called hospice and they were all able 
to die quality deaths through hospice. And um, that was a really big impulse for this book because the concept, the idea behind hospice, not necessarily the place or the practice, because it could be just as destroyed as a, a capitalist entity. If it, But the one I, I used was very small scale and lovely. Um, but the, the sentiment behind hospice is that every moment we're trying to, as a group, collectively, everyone who's experiencing the loss, as a group, we're trying to accentuate the quality of life in every moment for all of us. And we're trying to alleviate as much of the unnecessary suffering and pain that we can. So suddenly quality of life becomes what's important as someone's heading toward death, which which seems contradictory. But I actually think if we kind of looked at the whole of life that way, we live much better lives, knowing that we're going to die at some point, not wait till the end. So um, one story I want to take from this that um, I had many beautiful experiences. Um, it took me way too long to find hospice. But once I did, it was very beautiful. And um the third person who died, uh, my second chosen mom, Mary, when she died, um, was in an assisted living home. It was full of a bunch of uh, mostly women who'd been married for decades, who had had pretty normative relationships, husbands who had mostly were dead. So it was a lot of women who were seen pretty much as sort of expendable. Here they were kind of sent to, you know, at this place, kind of there till they died and their bodies were not it was really a profound experience for me. I basically kind of ended up living there with her um, and um, my mom before her, while well, they both died there, um, that these, their bodies were seen as not sexual, not reproductive, not productive, kind of just dispensable, disposable. Like in a way they were almost seen as sort of not having worth. They were just kind of biding out time to die. And that was not true of either of my moms. They were very full of life. So um, when my second mom died, I especially realized um, the facility structurally has to abide by HIPAA, which says, oh, when, when death starts happening or some, some illness happens, it's a very private thing and you shut someone's door and nobody knows about it. And I'd hang out with all these women who no one really seemed to see as like valued human, full human beings. And they would be like, you know, someone else just disappeared yesterday. Every day someone just is gone and no one ever tells us why. And so when Mary started dying, I was just realizing after this, um, now basically almost becoming a death doula, which I'm really drawn to on the, the third of these deaths, um, I realized I could actually just wave the HIPAA. And um, so we, Mary is very social. We left her door open. Everybody, all these women came and went and talked to her and hung out with her to the evening and read to her and sang and people visited and she gave mementos to people. And she was just so full of life until literally the moment she died or her eyes were sparkling the whole time as she was dying. And, um, and all these women and I end up staying in her room for about a week after. And again, all the women, but also all the custodians and the people did the cooking and the staff and pretty much everyone in the entire facility kept coming into the room before and after her death. And so we created this giant space of mutual aid, care, grief work. And I didn't, really think about it at the time so much. It just seemed like, well, why wouldn't we do this? And afterward, all, almost all the women said to me, you know, you're the first person that's realized like this is our home and, and, and we're people too. And it hurts us when people die and we have value. <laughs> we have value. And so a lot of them said to me, you know, we're realizing that we came here to live, not to die. And, and it, this is how we can do it is by opening up space for us to like visibilize our own losses and our own caring for each other and the, taking care of each other, being given things to do to take care of each other. And um, it was profound for me, though, equally, because I had a whole bunch of people taking care of me at the time. So it was this very mutualistic thing. But it really pained me that we have these institutions that 
don't even think, well, what does it mean for the people that are living there that it's their home? Or why do we have these privacy regulations that could be good, but often cut people off from each other or community or, yeah, the daily things that happen to a place like an assisted living home that people die almost every day or once a week. And why do we hide that from the people that know what's going on and that live there? So many, many ways in which I think this book is trying to contest and say, wow, there's so many different ways we could think about doing it, not just in social movements, but also in our everyday practices. Um, um, one last example that I really love, there's a movement in Spain called, um, I think it's um, died down, not to use a, a pun, but uh, called uh, PAH, which was about the massive um, home evictions that were happening in, in Spain. And um, there's a lovely little film called Seven Days in the Life of PAH. And um, they talk about the seven pillars of how they organize. And one of them is literally a day where people get together to talk about their emotions around losing their homes. And that was equally important to the direct action, to the advocacy, to the making sure people had homes, um, to demonstrations, that they saw that as equivalently important to all the other parts of the struggle. So how do we think about this not as something that's a in a box, set aside, individualized, but as something that's like lifelong, beautiful part of what makes us human is the whole of humanity. Um, because I think one of the sort of secrets of grief and grieving is uh, I'm, I'm not also advocating that every, st people stay in this mournful space for the entirety of their lives. But if we understand these parts of us is loss and, and, and all we, all that we find beautiful in life too joy, love, empathy, compassion, all part of what makes us human in grief, we actually experience a range of emotions. Grieving involves crying, laughing, denial, <laughs> forgetting, remembering, um, honoring, anger, the, the range of human emotions. I mean, at some points you end up laughing harder than you ever have because you have a bunch of people that are really understanding each other and can really share the fullness of who they are. So how can we use this space to not think of this grief as this dismal, horrible thing that we don't want to face? but as a space that as we open up to each other, we're actually seeing the whole range of who we could be and, and freeing ourselves to, to really be as caring and loving, as empathetic as we have the capacity to be, but we're, we're told to, again, to privatize or shut down or put in a box and um, let the experts take care of, um, not take care of each other. Uh, the last two things I want to put to you, and then I'll let you add any other final comments that you my have is just, you know, one, to really emphasize that it is opening up and challenging. What I like about this collection is it challenges. And as we've had in our discussion, as is evident to anybody who's listening, it's a real uh, test and interrogation in the best way of our own understandings of grief and to open up people to different ideas about it. And, and what I'm hearing from you um, although we haven't really gotten to any particular examples, is it all? Uh, well, no, no, that's not true. We talked about the loss of a home. So you can gr grief about the loss of a home. Uh, I'm thinking also of what would happen if you uh, looked at the issue, uh, the, the, what the trauma is that people go through, uh, the indigenous people who have fought pipeline construction on their land. If you just take like the Dakota Access Pipeline struggle 
and that they had that space and now they're they have lost that and then they are grieving over the loss of that space and so uh, i think that's what's good about this book is this um, consideration that it might not even just be the singular loss of a person but it also can be something much more um and also uh, the last thing, the second thing that I would throw out there for final consideration on our in our conversation here is, as we read the last, as I read the last part of your, the paragraph that you wrote, and it talked about how you know it will it can discomfort the stories told from above that have us believe we aren't human or deserving of life affirming lives. What we're discussing, what you all are are, are putting forward in the book has to do with many stories that are not told in our society that people who are in power in these structures do not want people to acknowledge. And so uh, that's, that's really important to bring out in our conversation. Yeah, no, I, I feel like there's been something really Im- profoundly beautiful in even the process of doing this book is the 37 people who contributed. I, I'm continue to be so grateful is all of them open themselves up to, to look at those forms of individual and um, collective loss due to all sorts of structural phenomena. And that was hard for, I think almost everyone, I I don't want to speak for everyone, but in the book to, to to sort of reopen that, those spaces, but then to sort of work through it together between um, having conversations about pieces and how those pieces maybe interact with each other now and and how they create space afterward in in conversations like this, but also in um, in public space conversations. Um, having done maybe the book just came out, but I think I've been part of about eight different events around this book, and the number of really incredible, beautiful stories people have shared about how they've combined both their desire for struggling toward a better world and trying to prefigure one, and understanding that completely because they are um, their losses give them the both you know the, the the hurt but also the 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 motivation and inspiration to fight harder and so I, I really appreciate there's a there is a piece on uh, several pieces that touch on things like colonialism and patriarchy and loss of our loss of land loss of um loss of having autonomy over our bodies <laughs> through people non-consensually doing things to them all sorts of ways in which loss happens from um but I was really struck in some of um, a lot of the conversations that have happened so far is that most people really understand that the kinds of losses we're talking about stretch over, you know, many generations or, or many decades and centuries. Um, So that there's something about the land, even when I don't even think there's a divide between when you mentioned the, the standing rocks, a great example, when people were on the land, part of why I think it was so powerful I was not there. So again, I'm, this is just speaking as an, as an outsider, um, following it. Part of what seemed so powerful for many people that went there, especially people that were indigenous was to, um, be able to be together to share stories about land and ancestor and what all the losses and what it's like to be resilient and to still be here and to be struggling and the host of things that actually do relate to that land. I don't think that the 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 grieving and the trying to heal and the trying to share stories waited till after Standing Rock. It's been something that's been happening for a long time. And it was just given 
a profound space at Standing Rock when many different um, groups, um, different indiv- indigenous nations and, and uh, peoples were able to come together and across those um, have conversations and stories and share with each other. So I think there's a power when we suddenly say, no, we know what's going on. We know this is where our ancestors are. We understand that this is in a long line of um, um, losses, that this isn't something new. Um, you know, I, I keep touching on murder by police and, you know, most people that have experienced that and a, a lot more who are fighting for abolition of police and prisons understand that that's a long, long legacy from the very beginning of when policing was started, um, either to round up um, and um, uh, displace and uh, uh, murder off uh, indigenous people or as um, through slave patrols, through um, policing urban space from um, through forms of white supremacy. Um, these, these forms of when one person is murdered today by one um, person in a police force, it brings up sort of the whole legacy of loss of, of, of what's happened because of the structure called policing. Um, so again, we could look at this as, well, this feels really heavy and overwhelming. And on the other hand, I think when we unmask that and make it clear that there's something that is connects us over the, the long thread of people struggling for something different and wanting connection and wanting community. So while people are in spaces. I remember hearing um, there's a story about the Oyatsinapa 43, the 43 students who were disappeared in uh, Mexico a little over three years ago. And I remember hearing one of the family members speak in person a few years ago. And they talked about how right after it happened that all the families had come together at the school where their children were going. And they didn't sort of realize it, but because of economics and other things, they ended up just staying there together. It wasn't sort of, didn't sound like an intentional thing. And through the process of them staying together, they created this mutual support economically and emotionally for them to grieve, but them also to um, resist, but in a way that I, I think that struggle has been really powerful in a way that shows there's there's something there's there's something larger than just our children, but there's also our children. So the fact that they can visualize the the 43 faces again and again and again for the past three years, but combine them as a collective and that they too found each other and were able to um, grieve and through that open up space for a whole bunch of people in um, the space called Mexico to grieve all sorts of disappearances and losses in ways that have actually created community and care and something larger that wasn't there before. Um, So, you know, I don't, I don't, I hope we can lessen losses more and more. I hope people don't have to experience losses from displacement and murder by police and um, what's happening in Puerto Rico where almost whole regions are going to be, and maybe ourselves as a species, one piece deals with that, looks at Fukushima and what it means to potentially uh, face the, the very extinction of ourselves as a species, which is a really profound way to think about loss. But how do we do that in a way that in the time we have left, whether that's, you know, a couple decades or much, much longer, how do we make every moment count? How do we care for each other better, love, do empathy well? So, you know, ultimately the, the argument of this book isn't that we need to, to dwell in the space of grief, but that we need to visualize that we are all sharing in a moment that is highlighting the long, long, long legacy of structural losses that have touched a huge part of humanity. And through that, that we can rehumanize ourselves in ways. And through that rehumanizing, there I place my hope <laughs> that um, we will push out those little cracks that will potentially start to lessen the losses that we're experiencing. 
and perhaps start shifting things around. So we live in a world where we're producing life, not being compelled by systems that want to produce and impose death upon us. Well, thank you, Cindy. I really appreciate you coming on the show to have this uh, conversation. Um, I think it's been uh, enlightening, if not um, uh, probably uh, affirming. Uh, it definitely brings me to a greater understanding of some really important issues. So uh, thank you again. And so for people who uh, may want to get this book, it is called, uh, I'll repeat the title, Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief. Uh, Cindy edited and worked on and wrote the prologue for it. And uh, you can buy it if you go to akpress.org and look for Rebellious Morning on the website. It's a good way to pick up this book. It's available in print and also as an ebook. That does it for our show this week. Again, a special thank you to Cindy. And I just wanted to correct her name. It is Mill Stein, uh, like since it's Halloween, Frankenstein. So uh, I really like this book. And I thought that the contributions in it had a lot of uh, provocative ideas about grief. So we're going to be doing a series uh, with three or four more of the contributors coming on the show to do interviews. And those are going to be more specific and deal with things like dealing with the disappearance of immigrants in uh, Mexico who are traveling across country, the refugees that are escaping uh, their, the violence in their home countries and trying to get to the United States, that kind of a thing. Or, you know, we're dealing with the grief and trauma of um, the existence, trying to exist as a black person in the United States. And that's Black Lives Matter activism and dealing with police brutality as Cindy referred to during our interview. So we'll have more specific interviews that deal with grief. And uh, it's the end of the month. And so again, I want to thank everyone who is a monthly contributor, who make pledges, who regularly give us donations in order to keep this show going. I know that Rania has been very busy over the past few months, and uh, you'd like to have more shows with her. Well, but your contributions have made it possible for me to continue this show while she has been away and uh, producing really extraordinary journalism. And we've talked about some of it, and there's probably much more that we could talk about on our show, but I hope you were able to read the three-part series that she had published for the Gray Zone Project at Alternate about uh, Kurdistan and Iraq, about the Yazidis, and um, her time talking to survivors uh, who were uh, impacted, their families, their friends were, were killed, impacted. Some of them were slaves to the Islamic State. Uh, so these uh, just heart-wrenching extraordinary and brutal stories uh, that she was able to bring forward and bring forward some truths 
that deal and address the sectarianism that goes on and, and give more of a, a nuanced picture of what is happening rather than the reductive sort of approach that we usually get from corporate news here in the United States. So Rania was doing a really great job by being on the ground there. And I'm glad that she was able to go. Um, she's in the middle of a kind of transition. And, and next week, we're going to be able to have Rania back on the show as a co-host. And I know that you'll be looking forward to that. Uh, but again, I, I want to make sure that all of you who are regular listeners know that there are ways that we would like to include you because we see what our show is as a kind of community. And it worked with the exclusive episode, and I think all of you responded pretty favorably to the sharing that we did uh, with Rania talking about how she got into journalism, and then I brought my story and talked about how I got into journalism, and that seemed to go over pretty well with the most uh, loyal and excited listeners that we have out there. So I'm glad that uh, you appreciated it. And one of the things that we want to do is continue this sort of thing. And maybe not all the time will it be exclusive. Sometimes they might be open to everyone, but a, but a lot of the time these will be rewards for the people who are making contributions uh, every month. And, and in some cases, I know this is money that you could easily be expending elsewhere. You know, maybe you are not getting one extra uh, coffee at Starbucks or you know, maybe there's like one extra thing that you could be doing with this money rather than supporting our show. So what I would suggest is that since the thing about how we got into journalism went over so well, we would love it if you had your own requests for short or longer exclusive episodes that you wanted us to do where we addressed a question or maybe a topic or an issue that you wanted us to have a discussion about. Uh, so, you know, if, we, if you wanted us to return to all this talk about Russian collusion within the Democratic Party and Russia or within the Republican Party and Russia or the Trump administration in Russia. Maybe you would ask us a question about that and we would just address that. Uh, maybe there's some kind of thing that's not even in the news, a topic that you want us to discuss um, and cover. Maybe there's something that isn't even political or related to current events. Maybe you want us to talk about a television show. Maybe you want us to talk about a film. Maybe there's a book that you read that you think we should try to get our hands on and we should dig into it and we should talk about that book for an episode. And maybe there's just some kind of like philosophical or life question that you have and you think that myself and Rania could do a pretty good show having a discussion. So we're open to all ideas, uh, again, except for, as I said, when we did the one episode if there's a black helicopter that's outside of your home and you feel like you're going to die in the next few minutes because the government has come to take you, it's a little late. So I don't know that we can do everything for you and we really can't talk 
if you feel like chips have been implanted in you, if you think that there's um, some kind of like uh, data that has been imprinted in the skin of your of your of your body, I, I don't really know what to do for you. I wish I could help, uh, but you're going to have to find somebody else. Well, other than that, we're really excited to talk about anything, and uh, there's definitely plenty out there as far as uh, subject matters to uh, chew on. And so, if if you've got our, any ideas, go ahead and leave a comment on our Patreon wall, or you can email. Uh, we do have a Gmail at unauthorizeddisclosure at gmail.com. And uh, also, you could hit us up on Twitter because we have the unauthorized dis, U-N-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-Z-E-D-D-I-S handle on Twitter. And we have a Facebook page, unauthorized disclosure on Facebook. So these are multiple ways that you could make suggestions about whatever you would like us to talk about on the show. That's a long-winded way of saying that we really want to bring you in, appreciate all that you do for us, and, and make sure that what we're talking about is responsive to you. And you can share comments and ideas with us, and then we'd be more than happy to respond to those and bring those into the show. So once again, thank you for your, all your support. Thank you for listening to Unauthorized Disclosure, and we'll be back next week with another episode.